Chapter Ten, Part One of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Ten, Before Donelson, Part One. Dick was the first in Colonel Winchester's troop to see the white flag floating over Fort Henry, and he uttered a shout of joy. Look, look, he cried, the fleet has taken the fort. So it has, said Colonel Winchester, and the army is not here. Now I wonder what General Grant will say when he learns that Foote has done the work before he could come. But Dick believed that General Grant would find no fault, that he would approve instead. The feeling was already spreading among the soldiers that this man, whose name was recently so new among them, cared only for results. He was not one to fight over precedence and to feel petty jealousies. The smoke of battle was beginning to clear away. Officers were landing from the boats to receive the surrender of the fort, and Colonel Winchester and his troops galloped rapidly back toward the army, which they soon met toiling through swamps and even through shallow overflow toward the tennessee the men had been hearing for more than an hour the steady booming of the cannon and every face was eager colonel winchester rode straight toward a short thick-set figure on a stout bay horse near the head of one of the columns this man like all the others was plastered with mud but colonel winchester gave him a salute of deep respect what does the cessation of firing mean colonel asked general grant it means that fort henry has surrendered to the fleet the southern force which was drawn up outside retreated southward but the fort its guns and immediate defenders are ours dick saw the faintest smile of satisfaction pass over the face of the general who said commodore foote has done well ride back and tell him that the army is coming up as fast as the nature of the ground will allow. In a short time the army was in the fort, which had been taken so gallantly by the Navy, and Grant, his generals, and Commodore Foote were in anxious consultation. Most of the troops were soon camped on the height where the southern force had stood, and there was great exultation. But Dick, who had now seen so much, knew that the high officers considered this only a beginning. Across the narrow stretch of land on the parallel river, the Cumberland, stood the great fort of Donelson. Henry was a small affair compared with it. It was likely that men who had been stationed at Henry had retreated there, and other formidable forces were marching to the same place. The Confederate commander, Johnston, after the destruction of his eastern wing at Mill Spring by Thomas, was drawing in his forces and concentrating the news of the loss of fort henry would cause him to hasten his operations he was rapidly falling back from his position at bowling green in kentucky buckner with his division was about to march from that place to join the garrison in donelson and floyd with another division would soon be on the way to the same point floyd had been the united states secretary of war before secession and the union men hated him it was said that the great partisan leader forrest with his cavalry was also at the fort 
much of this news was brought in by farmers and union sympathizers and dick and his comrades as they sat before the fires at the close of the short winter day understood the situation almost as well as the generals donelson is ninety per cent and henry only ten per cent said warner so long as the johnnies hold donelson on the cumberland they can build another fort anywhere they please along the tennessee and stop our fleet this general of ours has a good notion of the value of time and a swift blow and although i'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet i predict that he will attack donelson at once by both land and water how can he attack it by water asked pennington the distance between them is not great but our ships can't steam over land from the Tennessee to the Cumberland. No, but they can steam back up the Tennessee into the Ohio, thence to the mouth of the Cumberland, and down the Cumberland to Donelson. It would require only four or five days, and it'll take that long for the army to invade from the land side. Dick had his doubts about the ability of the army and the fleet to cooperate. Accustomed to the energy of the southern commanders in the east, he did not believe that Grant would be allowed to arrange things as he chose. But several days passed, and they heard nothing from the Confederates, although Donelson was only about twenty miles away. Johnston himself, brilliant and sagacious, was not there, nor was his lieutenant Beauregard, who had won such a great reputation by his victory at the first bull run. Dick was beginning to suspect a truth that later on was to be confirmed fully in his mind. Fortune had placed the great generals of the Confederacy, with the exception of Albert Sidney Johnston, in the East, but it had been the good luck of the North to open in the West with its best men. Now he saw the energy of Grant, the short man of rather insignificant appearance. Boats were sent down the Tennessee to meet any reinforcements that might be coming, take them back to the Ohio, and thence into the Cumberland. Fresh supplies of ammunition and food were brought up, and it became obvious to Dick that the daring commander meant to attack Donelson, even should its garrison outnumber his own besieging force. Along a long line from western Tennessee to eastern Kentucky, there was a mighty stir. Johnston had perceived the energy and courage of his opponent. He had shared the deep disappointment of all the southern leaders when Kentucky failed to secede but instead furnished so many thousands of fine troops to the Union army. Johnston, too, had noticed with alarm the tremendous outpouring of rugged men from the states beyond the Ohio and from the far northwest. The lumbermen who came down in scores of thousands from Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota were a stalwart crowd. War, save for the bullets and shells, offered to them no hardships to which they were not used. They had often worked for days at a time, up to their waists in icy water. They had endured thirty degrees below zero without a murmur. They had breasted blizzard and cyclone. They could live on anything, and they could sleep either in forest or on prairie or under the open sky. It was such men as these, including men of his own state and men of the Tennessee mountains, whom Johnston, who had all the qualities of a great commander, had to face. The forces against him were greatly superior in number. The eastern end of his line had been crushed already at Mill Spring. 
the extreme western end had suffered a severe blow at Fort Henry. But Jefferson Davis and the government at Richmond expected everything of him, and he manfully strove to do everything. First, there was a mighty marching of men, some news of which came through to Dick and his comrades with Grant. Johnston, with his main army, the very flower of the western south, fell back from Bowling Green in Kentucky toward Nashville, the capital of Tennessee. But Buckner, with his division, was sent from Bowling Green to help defend Donelson against the threatened attack by Grant, and he arrived there six days after the fall of Henry. On the way were the troops of Floyd, defeated in West Virginia, but afterwards sent westward. Floyd was at the head of them. Forrest, the great cavalry leader, was also there with his horsemen. The fort was crowded with defenders, but the slack pillow did not yet send forward anybody to see what Grant was doing, although he was only twenty miles away. All eyes were now turned upon the west. The center of action had suddenly shifted from Kentucky to Tennessee. The telegraph was young yet, but it was busy. It carried many varying reports to the cities north and south. The name of this new man, Grant, spelled trouble. People were beginning to talk much about him, and already some suspected that there was more in the back of his head than in those of far better known and far more pretentious northern generals in the east. None at least could dispute the fact that he was now the one whom everybody was watching. But the southern people, few of whom knew the disparity of numbers, had the fullest confidence in the brilliant Johnston. He was more than twenty years older than his antagonist, but his years had brought only experience and many triumphs, not weakness of either mind or body. At his right hand was the swarthy and confident Beauregard, great with the prestige of Bull Run, and Hardy, Bragg, Breckinridge, and Polk and there were many brilliant colonels, too, foremost among whom was George Kenton. A tremor passed through the North when it was learned that Grant intended to plunge into the winter forest, cross the Cumberland, and lay siege to Donelson. He was going beyond the plans of his superior, Halleck, at St. Louis. He was too daring. He would lose his army, away down there in the Confederacy. But others remembered his successes, particularly at Belmont and Fort Henry. They said that nothing could be won in war without risk, and they spoke of his daring and decision. They recalled, too, that he was master upon the waters, that there was no southern fleet to face his as it sailed up the southern rivers. The telegraph was already announcing that the gunboats, which had been handled with such skill and courage, would be in the Cumberland, ready to cooperate with Grant when he should move on to Donelson. Buell was moving also to form another link in the steel chain that was intended to bind the Confederacy in the West. Here again the mastery of the rivers was of supreme value to the North. Buell embarked his army on boats on Green River in the very heart of Kentucky, descended that river to the Ohio, passing down the latter to Smithland, where the Cumberland, coming up from the south, entered it and met another convoy destined for the huge invasion but the first convoy had come also by boat from another direction and from points far distant there were fresh regiments of farmers and pioneers from iowa nebraska and minnesota 
They were all eager, full of enthusiasm, anxious to be led against the enemy, and confident of triumph. Grant and his army, meanwhile, lying in the bleak forest beside the Tennessee, knew little of what was being said of them in the great world without. All their thoughts were of Donelson, across there on the other river, and the men asked to be led against it, inured to the hardships of border life. There was little sickness among them, despite the winter and the overflow of the flooded streams. They gathered the dead wood that littered the forest, built numerous fires, and waited as patiently as they could for the word to march. The Pennsylvanians were still camped with a Kentucky regiment to which Dick now belonged, and the fifth evening after the capture of Henry, he and his friends sat by one of the big fires. We'll advance either tomorrow or the next day, said Warner. The chances are at least ninety percent in favor of my statement. What do you say, Sergeant? I'd raise the ninety percent to one hundred, replied Whitley. We're all ready, and as you've observed, gentlemen, General Grant is a man who acts. The Johnnies evidently expect us, said Pennington. Our scouts have seen their cavalry in the woods watching us, but only in the last day or two. It's strange that they didn't begin it earlier. They say that General Pillow, who commands them, isn't of much force, said Dick. Well, it looks like it, said Warner, but from what we hear, he'll have quite an army at Donelson. General Grant will have his work cut out for him. The Johnnies, besides having their fort, can go into battle with just about as many men as we have, unless he waits for reinforcements, which I'm quite certain he isn't going to do. That evening, several bags of mail were brought to the camp on a small steamer which had come on three rivers, the Green, the Ohio, and the Tennessee. And Dick, to his great surprise and delight, received a letter from his mother. He had written several letters himself, but he had had no way of knowing until now that any of them had reached her. Only one had succeeded in getting through, and that had been written from Cairo. My dearest son, she wrote, I am full of joy to know that you have reached Cairo in safety and in health though I dread the great expedition upon which you say you are going. I hear in Pendleton many reports about General Grant. They say that he does not spare his men. The southern sympathizers here say that he is pitiless, and cares not how many thousands of his own soldiers he may sacrifice, if he only gains his aim. But of that I know not. I know it is a characteristic of our poor human nature to absolve one's own side, and to accuse those on the other side. I was in Pendleton this morning, and the reports are thick, thick from both northerners and southerners, that the armies are moving forward to a great battle. They have all marched south of us, and I do not know either whether these reports are true or false, although I fear that they are true. Your uncle, Colonel Kenton, is with General Johnston, and I hear is one of the most trusted officers. Colonel Kenton is a good man, and it would be one of the terrible tragedies of war if you and he were to meet on the field in this great battle which so many here is coming. I am very glad that you are now in the regiment of Colonel Winchester, and that you are an aide on his staff. It is best to be with one's own people. I have known Colonel Winchester a long time, and he has all the qualities that make a man brave and gentle. I hope that you and he will become the best of friends. There was much more in the letter. 
but it was only the little details that concerned mother and son. Dick was sitting by the fire when he read it, and then he read it a second time and a third time, folded it very carefully, and put it in the pocket in which he had carried the dispatch from General Thomas. Colonel Winchester was sitting near him, and Dick noticed again what a fine trim man he was. Although a little over forty, his figure was still slender, and he had an abundant head of thick, vital hair. His whole effect was that of youth. His glance met Dick's, and he smiled. A letter from home, he said. Yes, sir, from mother. She writes to me that she's glad I'm in your command. She speaks very highly of you, sir. And my mother is a woman of uncommon penetration. A faint red tinted the tan cheeks of the colonel. Dick thought it was merely of the reflection of the fire. Would you care for me to read what she says about you, asked Dick, if you don't mind? Dick drew out the letter again and read the paragraph. Your mother is a very fine woman, said Colonel Winchester. You're right, sir, said Dick, with enthusiasm. Colonel Winchester said no more, but rose presently and went to the tent of General Grant, where a conference of officers was to be held. Dick remained by the fire, where Warner and Pennington soon joined him. Our scouts have exchanged some shots with the enemy, said Pennington, and they have taken one or two prisoners, bold fellows, who say they're going to lick the spots off us. They say they have a big army at Donelson, and they're afraid of nothing except that Grant won't come on. Between ourselves, the Johnny Rebs are getting ready for us. It was Dick's opinion, too, that the Southern troops were making great preparations to meet them. But unlike the others, he was feeling the strong hand on the reins. He did not notice here the doubt and uncertainty that had reigned at Washington before the advance on Bull Run. In Grant's army were order and precision, and with perfect confidence in his commander, he rolled himself in his blankets that night and went to sleep. The order to advance did not come the next morning, and Dick, for a few moments, thought it might not come at all. The reports from Donelson were of a formidable nature, and Grant's own army was not provided for a winter campaign. It had a few wagons for food and ammunition, and some of the regiments from the northwest, cherishing the delusion that winter in Tennessee was not cold, were not provided with warm clothing and sufficient blankets. But Warner abated his confidence not one jot. The chance of our moving against Donelson is one hundred percent, he said. I passed the general today, and his lips were shut tight together, which means a resolve to do at all costs what one has intended to do. I still admit that the prophets and the sons of prophets live no more, but I predict with absolute certainty that we will move in the morning. The Vermonter's faith was justified. The army, being put in thorough trim, started at dawn upon its momentous march. Wintry fogs were rising from the great river and the submerged lowlands, and the air was full of raw, penetrating chill. An abundant breakfast was served to everybody, and then, with warmth and courage, the lads of the west and northwest marched forward with eagerness to an undertaking which they knew would be far greater than the capture of Fort Henry. End of chapter 10, part 1